How y'all doing there? Sure like to thank y'all for stopping by for another episode of this Removing the Illusion Podcast. Man, look at here. Now y'all know always before I get started here, I always like to tell y'all what I'm smoking on. And tonight, I'm smoking on a San Cristobal Papagaya. Man, I can't pronounce that word. Papagayo. Papagayo. Extra large, a 6x60 tonight. Man, this San Cristobal is a full-body cigar. It's a good one, too. Now, now this is kind of ironic about this stick here. I picked this stick here up tonight to give it a, give it a, give it a try because earlier I went to uh, Mary's Cuban uh, restaurant in, uh, in the shores down here in Florida. And I got me one of the big old Cuban sandwiches and got me a nice little old Cuban drink. I think it was like, like it was like a uh it was like a a soda that had coconut in, like a coconut soda. But man, it was really good, man. So after I got my belly all full, for some reason I thought about this papagayo, this cigar here, then it came to me about you know, about probably a ooh man, about sometime last year now. We have a cigar rep that comes into our cigar spot sometimes on Friday when he's in the area. A gentleman by the name of Jeremy. Jeremy works for Ashton Cigars. And man, this is an awesome young fella. Not because he's just all right, awesome young fella. It's also because he's a University of Michigan fan. Anybody that's a fan as a Wolverine is a fan of mine, I tell you. But Jeremy comes in, and I can remember last time Jeremy was in, because every time he come in, I always ask me, I say, hey, look, Mike, can you recommend something for me? And he always recommends a good stick for me. And I remember he, he was smoking on this Papa Gallo. And I can remember him because I asked him what it was. And just like I can't say it, that's how I was hearing it. I was hearing it like I can't say it. But this is what it was he was smoking on. It was this Papa Gallo. So if y'all look at my website, you know, y'all will see a picture of this nice San Cristobal Papa Gallo. And the interesting thing about it, Jeremy... Jeremy is holding the cigar up, and I can remember this picture vividly because he took it in our cigar spot, Ross Emporio, down here in top of the world, Florida. So take a look at my, my website, but let me tell y'all a little about this uh, San Cristobal Papagayo, extra large. Let me tell you something, man. This thing is presented in a thick and beefy 6x60 size, and it's available in a single cigar selection. This San Cristobal Papagayo, extra large, it's extra large. Is a handmade Nicaragua puro of the finest pedigree. Man, this stick is full body and offers a bold yet balanced flavor of cedar, cocoa, and earthy. Expert, ex, expertly, I can't, y'all, boy, y'all know I got Louisiana education, so I can't pronounce all these old big words. Expertly rolled with the best Cuban seed tobaccos. It's the closest as you'll come to a genuine Havana without having to leave the country. And you know, you can't get them things, them Havanas, unless you go over there to Cuba. But, you know, they tell me them old Cuban cigars from Cuban ain't all as good as they cracked up to be like they used to be. You know, you should pay for the name these days. You know, you get you one of these good Nicaraguan sticks, you get you a good a good stick. Now, and that brings me to something I was thinking about. when uh, I, Whenever I see Ashton cigars, I was down there with just me. There's a couple of fellas, uh, this was probably about two years ago now, we was down in Ybor City. And uh, down in Ybor City by the park, parking garage yet, a little ways from it, before you get to the train tracks, there's this space that looks like a house. But it's not a house. It's actually where Arturo, it's like an Arturo Fuente, where they sell their cigars. It's like a little boot cigar boutique place. But it has a lot of hand-rolled uh, uh, Fuente. Arturo Fuente 
has a lot of, because you know, down in Ybor City, they have a, a factory there. But this little house, I never knew that it was a boutique cigar place and it carries a lot of Arturo Fuente. So I was, me and the fellow, we was cruising around in that and I seen Ashton Cigar. I was like, why is there Ashton Cigar and an Arturo Fuente cigar boutique? But then one of the guys, the guy who worked there, he told me that Arturo rose for Ashton. See, I thought Ashton was a standalone company. But Ashton is just a brand, and a lot of their cigars, you know, they get it rolled by other companies. Now, the blend, now they tell me that the blend is an Ashton blend. They do like the chemists or whatever. You know, they do their own blends. But companies like Arturo Fuente and probably other companies actually do the rolling for them. That was very interesting to me. Because like I said, I thought Ashton was a big manufacturing brand on its own. You know, sort of like Arturo Fuente or Padron. You know, I thought it was a, a, a standalone like that, but it wasn't. And I, that was pretty cool seeing Ashton Cigars and Arturo Fuente Boutique. But let me tell you something. This here, Papa Gallo, Papa Gallo that Jeremy selected, this is a good stick. And let me tell you something. We waiting on Jeremy to come back when he was brown our parts down here in top of the world, Florida. Because see, on, especially on a Friday night, because we, we play pool on Friday nights and we eat and socialize. And sometimes Jeremy, if he in the area... You know, he comes in and he plays a good game. You know, when he off, when he off, he plays a good game of pool. First time he came in there, he was, you know, he was kind of shining on his own like he couldn't play. But that Jeremy's a good pool table. I mean, good pool player. I, we, we all, we all love Jeremy when he come. So I don't know if he's ever going to hear this thing here because I ain't that big of a podcast. But if he ever hear, Jeremy, you, 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 you come on back to Ross because we, we, we waiting to put it on you now. And you know me, Maduro, I didn't got a whole lot better now. I can at least hit a few balls in the hole. <laughs> but my man Jerry from Ashton Cigars, he's a rep for Ashton Cigars. He's an excellent young man. And if he ever in y'all cigar spot, because I tell y'all to shop local at your local cigar places. If he ever in y'all cigar spot, y'all ask Jeremy to recommend a good stick for y'all. Now y'all know it's going to be Ashton and you know it's going to be good. <laughs> All right. But what I want to talk to y'all about here tonight, I want to talk to y'all about hedges. You know, these hedge fund peoples. And these money spe and these speculators. See, I got thinking about this thing because I was riding in my car. Y'all know I listen to a lot of podcasts, and uh, and they were talking about, uh, I guess in Nebraska, somewhere where they well, where where uh, where they make the, where a lot of corn is grown. They say how these speculators come in, right? These futures and speculators, how they come in to these different agriculture farmers, and they offer them a lot of money, right? They offer them a lot of money for their futures. Right. So I guess pretty much the way the game, you know what, you know what, before I get into it, what I want y'all to do, let's take a look at hedges and speculators. Because see, this is how a lot of things get out of whack with the economy. When these folks come in, right, and they jack the price of things up to try to make money. You see what I'm saying? Which ain't nothing wrong with what they do. You know, it's a benefit for the farmers. It's a benefit for businesses, you know, business who, who let these speculators come in and give them so much money. Right for stuff that they haven't produced yet, you know. Was I well? I guess hedges and speculators. I guess I guess they can go both ways. I mean, they can make money, they can lose money, but a lot of times they make a whole lot of money by over evaluating things. But right now, let's take a look at hedges and speculators, and then on the backside, I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell y'all my little piece how I got interested in this hedges and speculators, how this thing here kind of work, okay? So look here, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to smoke on my San Cristobal Papagayo extra large, 
I'm gonna smoke on this little thing here, full body, and then I'm gonna come back and catch up with y'all on the flip side of this little talk here. All right, hedges and speculators, man, show is interesting. Hedgers and speculators, speculators, speculators are people who analyze and forecast futures price movement, trading contracts with the hope of making a profit. Speculators put their money at risk and must be prepared to accept outright losses in the futures market. How do speculators profit? Speculators earn a profit when they offset futures contracts to their benefit. To do this, a speculator buys contracts then sells them back at a higher, contract, price than that at which they purchased them. Conversely, they sell contracts and buy them back at a lower, contract, price than they sold them. In either case, if successful, a profit is made. Are there different kinds of speculators? Oftentimes, speculators specialize in particular commodities. If the speculator is a CME member, you'll find them in their favorite trading pits at the exchange. For example, a private speculator may specialize in euro dollars and trade only in the euro dollar pit day after day. Each speculator will trade according to his or her own style. Some traders are scalpers who buy and sell futures contracts quickly when prices move only a fraction of a cent. Others are day traders who will buy and sell throughout the day, closing their position before the session ends. Others are position traders who may hold their positions for days, weeks, or months at a time. Of course, speculators don't have to be CME members. There are thousands of individuals who trade speculatively through brokerage firms. The Role of the Speculator Speculators enter the futures market when they anticipate prices are going to change. While they put their money at risk, they won't do so without first trying to determine to the best of their ability whether prices are moving up or down. Speculators analyze the market and forecast futures price movement as best they can. They may engage in the study of the external events that affect price movement or apply historical price movement patterns to the current market. In any case, the smart speculator doesn't operate blind. A speculator who anticipates upward price movement would want to take advantage by buying futures contracts. If predictions are correct, then the contracts can be sold later at a profit. If it's expected that prices were going to move downward, the speculator would want to sell now and, if all goes as planned, buy back later at a lower price. Hedger versus Speculator All people who trade futures contracts are not speculators. People who buy and sell the actual commodities can use the futures markets to protect themselves from commodity prices that move against them. They're called hedgers. Speculators versus hedgers. Speculators assume risk for hedgers. Speculators accept risk in the futures markets, trying to profit from price changes. Hedgers use the futures markets to avoid risk, protecting themselves against price changes. Hedgers. There's a futures contract for a commodity or financial product because there are people who conduct an active business in that commodity. For example, there's a lumber futures contract because there are lumber producers who sell lumber and companies that buy lumber. The hedger plans to buy, sell, a commodity, such as lumber or live cattle, and buys, sells, a futures contract to lock in a price and protect against rising, falling, prices. The need for risk management that futures can meet holds true for all markets, including financial markets. Internationally, companies hedge their foreign exchange and interest rate exposures. Similarly, portfolio managers hedge stock fund risk. Why do some commercial firms use the futures market? Buyers and sellers of the actual commodities use the futures market as a form of risk management. 
They use futures to protect themselves against price changes. Hedging. The producers and users of commodities who use the futures market are called hedgers. Buying and selling futures as a risk management tool is called hedging. Commodity prices in the cash markets have a fundamental relationship to the futures prices. When the forces of supply and demand shift and drive prices up and down in the cash markets, futures prices tend to rise and fall in a parallel fashion. So, for example, if cattle prices in the cash markets started to rise, the live cattle futures would start to rise in roughly the same way. But not exactly. They don't tend to move in exact amounts. Hedgers take advantage of this relationship between cash and futures prices. Hedging is buying or selling futures contracts as a temporary substitute for buying or selling the commodity at a later date in the cash market. We'll show how that works. Here's how hedging works. Let's take a look at the meat packer. Suppose a meat packer needs to buy cattle in October. Today's cash price is okay, but what if prices rise? The meat packer can lock in a price on the cattle today, just in case the cash prices do go up between now and October. Protecting an October purchase price can be done by buying October live cattle futures contracts. This is called a long hedge. Who are hedgers? Well, you know about lumber producers and meat packers. Others are commercial firms or individuals whose businesses concern the same or similar commodities that are traded on the futures markets. They're both U.S. and international firms, including banks, corporations, pension funds, exporters, and importers who need to protect against foreign currency fluctuation, food processors and a great variety of other businesses. Now, let's take a quick in-depth look into hedge funds. What is a hedge fund? Hedge funds are alternative investments using pooled funds that employ different strategies to earn active return, or alpha, for their investors. Hedge funds may be aggressively managed or make use of derivatives and leverage in both domestic and international markets with the goal of generating high returns, either in an absolute sense or over a specified market benchmark. It is important to note that hedge funds are generally only accessible to accredited investors as they require less SEC regulations than other funds. One aspect that has set the hedge fund industry apart is the fact that hedge funds face less regulation than mutual funds and other investment vehicles. Introduction to Hedge Funds Understanding Hedge Funds Each hedge fund is constructed to take advantage of certain identifiable market opportunities. Hedge funds use different investment strategies and thus are often classified according to investment style. There is substantial diversity in risk attributes and investments among styles. Legally, Hedge funds are most often set up as private investment limited partnerships that are open to a limited number of accredited investors and require a large initial minimum investment. Investments in hedge funds are illiquid as they often require investors to keep their money in the fund for at least one year, a time known as the lockup period. Withdrawals may also only happen at certain intervals such as quarterly or biannually. Key Takeaways Asterisk hedge funds are alternative investment vehicles that employ a variety of strategies to generate alpha for their accredited investor clients. Asterisk they are more expensive as compared to conventional investment instruments because they have a 2 and 20 fee structure, meaning they charge 2% for asset management and take 20% of overall profits as fees. Asterisk they have had an exceptional growth curve in the last 20 years and have been associated with several controversies. The history of the hedge fund. A former writer and sociologist Alfred Winslow Jones's company, A.W. Jones & Co. launched the first hedge fund in 1949. It was while writing an article about current investment trends for fortune in 1948 that Jones was inspired to try his hand at managing money. He raised $100,000, in 
including $40,000 out of his own pocket, and set forth to try to minimize the risk in holding long-term stock positions by short-selling other stocks. This investing innovation is now referred to as the classic long-slash-short equities model. Jones also employed leverage to enhance returns. In 1952, Jones altered the structure of his investment vehicle, converting it from a general partnership to a limited partnership and adding a 20% incentive fee as compensation for the managing partner. As the first money manager to combine short-selling, the use of leverage shared risk through a partnership with other investors and a compensation system based on investment performance, Jones earned his place in investing history as the father of the hedge fund. Hedge funds went on to dramatically outperform most mutual funds in the 1960s and gained further popularity when a 1966 article in Fortune highlighted an obscure investment that outperformed every mutual fund on the market by double-digit figures over the previous year and by high double digits over the previous five years. However, as hedge fund trends evolved, in an effort to maximize returns, many funds turned away from Jones' strategy, which focused on stock picking coupled with hedging and chose instead to engage in riskier strategies based on long-term leverage. These tactics led to heavy losses in 1969-70, followed by a number of hedge fund closures during the bear market of 1973-74. The industry was relatively quiet for more than two decades until a 1986 article in Institutional Investor touted the double-digit performance of Julian Robertson's Tiger Fund. With a high-flying hedge fund once again capturing the public's attention with its stellar performance, investors flocked to an industry that now offered thousands of funds and an ever-increasing array of exotic strategies, including currency trading and derivatives such as futures and options. High-profile money managers deserted the traditional mutual fund industry in droves in the early 1990s, seeking fame and fortune as hedge fund managers. Unfortunately, history repeated itself in the late 1990s and into the early 2000s as a number of high-profile hedge funds, including Robertson's, failed in spectacular fashion. Since that era, the hedge fund industry has grown substantially. Today the hedge fund industry is massive total assets under management in the industry are valued at more than $3.2 trillion according to the 2018 Precon Global Hedge Fund Report. Based on statistics from research firm Barclays Hedge, the total number of assets under management for hedge funds jumped by 2,335% between 1997 and 2018. The number of operating hedge funds has grown as well. There were around 2,000 hedge funds in 2002. Estimates vary about the number of hedge funds operating today. This number had crossed 10,000 by the end of 2015. However, losses and underperformance led to liquidations. By the end of 2017, there are 9,754 hedge funds according to research firm Hedge Fund Research. Key Characteristics Asterisk They're only open to accredited or qualified investors, hedge funds are only allowed to take money from qualified investors individuals with an annual income that exceeds $200,000 for the past two years or a net worth exceeding $1 million, excluding their primary residence. As such, the Securities and Exchange Commission deems qualified investors suitable enough to handle the potential risks that come from a wider investment mandate. Asterisk they offer wider investment latitude than other funds, a hedge fund's investment universe is only limited by its mandate. A hedge fund can basically invest in anything land, real estate, stocks, derivatives, and currencies. Mutual funds, by contrast, have to basically stick to stocks or bonds and are usually long only. Asterisk they often employ leverage, hedge funds will often use borrowed money to amplify their returns. As we saw during the financial crisis of 2008, leverage can also wipe out hedge funds.
Asterisk fee structure, instead of charging an expense ratio only, hedge funds charge both an expense ratio and a performance fee. This fee structure is known as 2 and 20 a 2% asset management fee and then a 20% cut of any gains generated. There are more specific characteristics that define a hedge fund, but basically, because they are private investment vehicles that only allow wealthy individuals to invest, hedge funds can pretty much do what they want as long as they disclose the strategy upfront to investors. This wide latitude may sound very risky, and at times it can be. Some of the most spectacular financial blow UPS have involved hedge funds. That said, this flexibility afforded to hedge funds has led to some of the most talented money managers producing some amazing long-term returns. It is important to note that hedging is actually the practice of attempting to reduce risk, but the goal of most hedge funds is to maximize return on investment. The name is mostly historical, as the first hedge funds tried to hedge against the downside risk of a bear market by shorting the market. Mutual funds generally don't enter into short positions as one of their primary goals. Nowadays, hedge funds use dozens of different strategies, so it isn't accurate to say that hedge funds just hedge risk. In fact, because hedge fund managers make speculative investments, these funds can carry more risk than the overall market. Below are some of the risks of hedge funds. Asterisk concentrated investment strategy exposes hedge funds to potentially huge losses. Asterisk hedge funds typically require investors to lock up money for a period of years. Asterisk use of leverage, or borrowed money, can turn what would have been a minor loss into a significant loss. Hedge fund manager pay structure. Hedge fund managers are notorious for their typical 2 and 20 pay structure whereby the fund manager receives 2% of assets and 20% of profits each year. It's the 2% that gets the criticism, and it's not difficult to see why. Even if the hedge fund manager loses money, he still gets 2% of assets. For example, a manager overseeing a $1 billion fund could pocket $20 million a year in compensation without lifting a finger. That said, there are mechanisms put in place to help protect those who invest in hedge funds. Oftentimes, fee limitations such as high water marks are employed to prevent portfolio managers from getting paid on the same returns twice. Fee caps may also be in place to prevent managers from taking on excess risk. How to pick a hedge fund? With so many hedge funds in the investment universe, it is important that investors know what they are looking for in order to streamline the due diligence process and make timely and appropriate decisions. When looking for a high-quality hedge fund, it is important for an investor to identify the metrics that are important to them and the results required for each. These guidelines can be based on absolute values, such as returns that exceed 20% per year over the previous five years, or they can be relative, such as the top five highest performing funds in a particular category. For a list of the biggest hedge funds in the world read, what are the biggest hedge funds in the world? Fund Absolute Performance Guidelines The first guideline an investor should set when selecting a fund is the annualized rate of return. Let's say that we want to find funds with a five-year annualized return that exceeds the return on the Citigroup World Government Bond Index, WGBI, by 1%. This filter would eliminate all funds that underperform the index over long time periods, and it could be adjusted based on the performance of the index over time. This guideline will also reveal funds with much higher expected returns, such as global macro funds, long-biased long-slash-short funds, and several others. But if these aren't the types of funds the investor is looking for, then they must also establish a guideline for standard deviation. Once again, we will use the WGBI to calculate the standard deviation for the index over the previous five years. Let's assume we add 1% to this result, 
and establish that value as the guideline for standard deviation. Funds with a standard deviation greater than the guideline can also be eliminated from further consideration. Unfortunately, high returns do not necessarily help to identify an attractive fund. In some cases, a hedge fund may have employed a strategy that was in favor, which drove performance to be higher than normal for its category. Therefore, once certain funds have been identified as high return performers, it is important to identify the fund's strategy and compare its returns to other funds in the same category. To do this, an investor can establish guidelines by first generating a peer analysis of similar funds. For example, one might establish the 50th percentile as the guideline for filtering funds. Now an investor has two guidelines that all funds need to meet for further consideration. However, applying these two guidelines still leaves too many funds to evaluate in a reasonable amount of time. Additional guidelines need to be established, but the additional guidelines will not necessarily apply across the remaining universe of funds. For example, the guidelines for a merger arbitrage fund will differ from those for a long-short market neutral fund. Fund Relative Performance Guidelines To facilitate the investor's search for high-quality funds that not only meet the initial return and risk guidelines but also meet strategy-specific guidelines, the next step is to establish a set of relative guidelines. Relative performance metrics should always be based on specific categories or strategies. For example, it would not be fair to compare a leveraged global macro fund with a market-neutral, long-slash-short equity fund. To establish guidelines for a specific strategy, an investor can use an analytical software package, such as Morningstar, to first identify a universe of funds using similar strategies. Then, a peer analysis will reveal many statistics, broken down into quartiles or deciles, for that universe. The threshold for each guideline may be the result for each metric that meets or exceeds the 50th percentile. An investor can loosen the guidelines by using the 60th percentile or tighten the guideline by using the 40th percentile. Using the 50th percentile across all the metrics usually filters out all but a few hedge funds for additional consideration. In addition, establishing the guidelines this way allows for flexibility to adjust the guidelines as the economic environment may impact the absolute returns for some strategies. Here is a sound list of primary metrics to use for setting guidelines. Asterisk 5-year annualized returns. Asterisk standard deviation. Asterisk rolling standard deviation. Asterisk months to recovery slash maximum drawdown. Asterisk downside deviation. These guidelines will help eliminate many of the funds in the universe and identify a workable number of funds for further analysis. Other fund consideration guidelines. An investor may also want to consider other guidelines that can either further reduce the number of funds to analyze or to identify funds that meet additional criteria that may be relevant to the investor. Some examples of other guidelines include Asterisk fund size slash firm size, the guideline for size may be a minimum or maximum depending on the investor's preference. For example, institutional investors often invest such large amounts that a fund or firm must have a minimum size to accommodate a large investment. For other investors, a fund that is too big may face future challenges using the same strategy to match past successes. Such might be the case for hedge funds that invest in the small cap equity space. Asterisk track record, if an investor wants a fund to have a minimum track record of 24 or 36 months, this guideline will eliminate any new funds. However, sometimes a fund manager will leave to start their own fund and although the fund is new, the manager's performance can be tracked for a much longer time period. Asterisk minimum investment, 
This criterion is very important for smaller investors as many funds have minimums that can make it difficult to diversify properly. The fund's minimum investment can also give an indication of the types of investors in the fund. Larger minimums may indicate a higher proportion of institutional investors, while low minimums may indicate a larger number of individual investors. Asterisk redemption terms, these terms have implications for liquidity and become very important when an overall portfolio is highly illiquid. Longer lockup periods are more difficult to incorporate into a portfolio, and redemption periods longer than a month can present some challenges during the portfolio management process. A guideline may be implemented to eliminate funds that have lockups when a portfolio is already illiquid, while this guideline may be relaxed when a portfolio has adequate liquidity. Taxing hedge fund profits. When a domestic U.S. hedge fund returns profits to its investors, the money is subject to capital gains tax. The short-term capital gains rate applies to profits on investments held for less than one year, and it is the same as the investor's tax rate on ordinary income. For investments held for more than one year, the rate is not more than 15% for most taxpayers, but it can go as high as 20% in high tax brackets. This tax applies to both U.S. and foreign investors. An offshore hedge fund is established outside of the United States, usually in a low-tax or tax-free country. It accepts investments from foreign investors and tax-exempt U.S. entities. These investors do not incur any U.S. tax liability on the distributed profits. Ways Hedge Funds Avoid Taxes Many hedge funds are structured to take advantage of carried interest. Under this structure, a fund is treated as a partnership. The founders and fund managers are the general partners, while the investors are the limited partners. The founders also own the management company that runs the hedge fund. The managers earn the 20% performance fee of the carried interest as the general partner of the fund. Hedge fund managers are compensated with this carried interest, their income from the fund is taxed as a return on investments as opposed to a salary or compensation for services rendered. The incentive fee is taxed at the long-term capital gains rate of 20% as opposed to ordinary income tax rates, where the top rate is 39.6%. This represents significant tax savings for hedge fund managers. This business arrangement has its critics, who say that the structure is a loophole that allows hedge funds to avoid paying taxes. The carried interest rule has not yet been overturned despite multiple attempts in Congress. It became a topical issue during the 2016 primary election. Many prominent hedge funds use reinsurance businesses in Bermuda as another way to reduce their tax liabilities. Bermuda does not charge a corporate income tax, so hedge funds set up their own reinsurance companies in Bermuda. The hedge funds then send money to the reinsurance companies in Bermuda. These reinsurers, in turn, invest those funds back into the hedge funds. Any profits from the hedge funds go to the reinsurers in Bermuda, where they owe no corporate income tax. The profits from the hedge fund investments grow without any tax liability. Taxes are only owed once the investors sell their stakes in the reinsurers. The business in Bermuda must be an insurance business. Any other type of business would likely incur penalties from the U.S. Internal Revenue Service, IRS, for passive foreign investment companies. The IRS defines insurance as an active business. To qualify as an active business, the reinsurance company cannot have a pool of capital that is much larger than what it needs to back the insurance that it sells. It is unclear what the standard is, as it has not yet been defined by the IRS. Hedge Fund Controversies a number of hedge funds have been implicated in insider trading scandals since 2008. One of the most high-profile insider trading cases involves the Galleon Group managed by Raj Rajaratnam. 
The Galleon Group managed over $7 billion at its peak before being forced to close in 2009. The firm was founded in 1997 by Raj Rajaratnam. In 2009, federal prosecutors charged Rajaratnam with multiple counts of fraud and insider trading. He was convicted on 14 charges in 2011 and began serving an 11-year sentence. Many Galleon Group employees were also convicted in the scandal. Rajaratnam was caught obtaining insider information from Rajith Gupta, a board member of Goldman Sachs. Before the news was made public, Gupta allegedly passed on information that Warren Buffett was making an investment in Goldman Sachs in September 2008 at the height of the financial crisis. Rajaratnam was able to buy substantial amounts of Goldman Sachs stock and make a hefty profit on those shares in one day. Rajaratnam was also convicted on other insider trading charges. Throughout his tenure as a fund manager, he cultivated a group of industry insiders to gain access to material information. Regulations for hedge funds Hedge funds are so big and powerful that the SEC is starting to pay closer attention, particularly because breaches such as insider trading and fraud seem to be occurring much more frequently. However, a recent act has actually loosened the way that hedge funds can market their vehicles to investors. In March 2012, the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act, Jobs Act, was signed into law. The basic premise of the Jobs Act was to encourage funding of small businesses in the U.S. by easing securities regulation. The Jobs Act also had a major impact on hedge funds. In September 2013, the ban on hedge fund advertising was lifted. In a 4-to-1 vote, the SEC approved a motion to allow hedge funds and other firms that create private offerings to advertise to whomever they want, but they still can only accept investments from accredited investors. Hedge funds are often key suppliers of capital to startups and small businesses because of their wide investment latitude. Giving hedge funds the opportunity to solicit capital would in effect help the growth of small businesses by increasing the pool of available investment capital. Hedge fund advertising entails offering the fund's investment products to accredited investors or financial intermediaries through print, television, and the internet. A hedge fund that wants to solicit, advertise to, investors must file a Form D with the SEC at least 15 days before it starts advertising. Because hedge fund advertising was strictly prohibited prior to lifting this ban, the SEC is very interested in how advertising is being used by private issuers, so it has made changes to Form D filings. Funds that make public solicitations will also need to file an amended Form D within 30 days of the offering's termination. Failure to follow these rules will likely result in a ban from creating additional securities for a year or more. Post-2008, Chasing the S&P Since the 2008 crisis, the hedge fund world has entered into another period of less-than-stellar returns. Many funds which previously enjoyed double-digit returns during an average year have seen their profits diminish significantly. In many cases, funds have failed to match the returns of the S&P 500. For investors considering where to place their money, this becomes an increasingly easy decision, why suffer the high fees and initial investments, the added risk, and the withdrawal limitations of hedge funds if a safer, simpler investment like a mutual fund can produce returns that are the same or, in some cases, even stronger? There are many reasons why hedge funds have struggled in recent years. These reasons run the gauntlet from geopolitical tensions around the globe to an over-reliance among many funds on particular sectors, including technology and interest rate hikes by the Fed. Many prominent fund managers have made highly publicized bad bets which have cost them not only monetarily but in terms of their reputations as savvy fund leaders, too. David Einhorn is an example of this approach. 
Einhorn's firm Greenlight Capital bet against Allied Capital early on and Lehman Brothers during the financial crisis. Those high-profile bets were successful and earned Einhorn the reputation of a shrewd investor. However, the firm posted losses of 34%, its worst year ever, in 2018 on the back of shorts against Amazon, which recently became the second trillion-dollar company after Apple, and holdings in General Motors, which posted a less-than-stellar 2018. Notably, the overall size of the hedge fund industry, in terms of assets under management, has not declined significantly during this period and has continued to grow. There are new hedge funds launching all the time, even as several of the past 10 years have seen record numbers of hedge fund closures. In the midst of growing pressures, some hedge funds are re-evaluating aspects of their organization, including the 2 and 20 fee structure. According to data from hedge fund research, the last quarter of 2016 saw the average management fee fall to 1.48%, while the average incentive fee fell to 17.4%. In this sense, the average hedge fund is still much more costly than, say, an index or mutual fund, but the fact that the fee structure is changing on average is notable. Major Hedge Funds In mid-2018, data provider HFM Absolute Return created a ranked list of hedge funds according to Total Ahum. This list of top hedge funds includes some companies which hold more in Ahum in other areas besides a hedge fund arm. Nonetheless, the ranking factors in only the hedge fund operations at each firm. Paul Singer's Elliott Management Corporation held $35 billion in Ahum as of the survey. Founded in 1977, the fund is occasionally described as a vulture fund, as roughly one-third of its assets are focused on distressed securities, including debt for bankrupt countries. Regardless, the strategy has proven successful for multiple decades. Founded in 2001 by David Siegel and John Overdeck, New York's Two Sigma Investments is near the top of the list of hedge funds by Ahum, with more than $37 billion in managed assets. The firm was designed to not rely on a single investment strategy, allowing it to be flexible along with shifts in the market. One of the most popular hedge funds in the world is James H. Simon's Renaissance Technologies. The fund, with $57 billion in Ahum, was launched in 1982, but it has revolutionized its strategy along with changes in technology in recent years. Now, Renaissance is known for systematic trading based on computer models and quantitative algorithms. Thanks to these approaches, Renaissance has been able to provide investors with consistently strong returns, even in spite of recent turbulence in the hedge fund space more broadly. AQR Capital Investments is the second largest hedge fund in the world, overseeing just under $90 billion in Ahum as of the time of HFM survey. Based in Greenwich, Connecticut, AQR is known for utilizing both traditional and alternative investment strategies. Ray Dalio's Bridgewater Associates remains the largest hedge fund in the world, with just under $125 billion in Ahum as of mid-2018. The Connecticut-based fund employs about 1,700 people and focuses on a global macro-investing strategy. Bridgewater counts foundations, endowments, and even foreign governments and central banks among its clientele. All right now, what y'all think about that? Now, see, now, like that, this is how I got interested because I was listening to uh, this little podcast and they was talking about how this farm, how this speculator, right, went into this, this farming area where they grew corn at. And the previous year, right, uh, the, I guess the farmer had a bad year the previous year and he lost a lot of money, you see. 
So what happened was a speculator. He he went in there, right? He went well. You know what? He didn't have. He only had. He didn't have a bad year growing. He had a bad year selling this crop because a lot of these speculators they go around these other foreign countries, right, and make deals with these foreign countries. Say, for instance, in in South America, somebody growing corn in South America, right? If that if that speculator think he can buy that corn cheap in South America, right, he'll go down there in South America and make a deal, right? Now the farmer in the United States, he can lose money because. He, he, he can have a nice crop, but nobody buys his crop because the speculator didn't overinflate it. So he may lose money, right? Because the cost of production in the United States may to produce corn may be higher than the cost of production in South America. Now, look, now, I'm telling y'all right now, I got a Louisiana education. So when I talk to y'all, it's, it's purely from a dummy perspective, okay? So it may not be exactly the way the way them old pretty boys, the speculators and the hedge funds people talk to get people out their little money. But I'm just I'm just trying to give y'all my little understanding. So I guess what happens is this farmer, this 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 uh this this this, this, this speculator, he goes to this uh this farmer community in the, in the, in the middle in the Midwest or somewhere over there, and he uh, he offered a farmer say he offered a farmer a million dollars for his for his for next year crop. Okay, now the farmer got to sit there and think about it. He got to say, well. If I lock in my future crop for a million dollars, I can either and the million dollars that the speculator gonna go lock him in for is guaranteed. That's guaranteed the million dollars the speculator gonna give him, right? But the farmer got to say if I lock it in at at a million dollars and the market goes up next year, I can lose money. Or if I had a if I bad crop next year, right, I can make money. I'm guaranteed to make a million dollars. Whichever way it goes, I'm guaranteed to make a million dollars, right? But if the market goes up. I got to be satisfied with losing money because I'm going to lose money because I'm going to lock in for a million dollars, right? But like I say, it's a game on the speculator part two because he can lose a million dollars because the farmer can have a bad crop, right? So the farmer locks in for a million dollars and when that crop comes, right? What the speculator do is he pushes, he, he hedges, he, he is hedging his bet that next year, right? If I, if I was spending a million dollars on this crop, um, he's hedging his bets that that crop next year is going to be worth at least fifty percent more, right? Of 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 the million of the million dollars that he's that he that he that he just gave his man for his crop. See, he's hedging his bets like Las Vegas. He's hedging his bets that he going that he going to at least make a profit next year. Now, on the back end, what the speculators doing, right? These speculators are manipulating the market. They manip 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 manipulating the market, right? To gain an advantage, like they typically talk about, in no inside trading. Man, let me tell you something. All them companies do inside trading. That's how these big people make money. They inside trade. It's, it ain't called Wall Street for nothing. Everything on Wall Street should be called inside trading or uh, street. That's what it should be. Because because these speculators are the ones who drive the market up because they just gave this man a million dollars. So they got to hedge their bet. They, in order to hedge their bet, they got to go out here and create an artificial market. Now, how do you create an artificial market? Now, this is from a double perspective now. You create an artificial market through what? Through media, through propaganda, right? That's why they talk about this El Nino thing and the weather is bad. They're going to have a bad crop next year and all this, or there's going to be a good crop next year or the farmers in China is going to have a bad crop. So they say they can buy chickens from uh, South America instead of buying chickens from China. And like it, like the chicken industry in the United States, what killed chicken industry in the United States is because the hedges and speculators start going over to China and buying chickens and stuff in in China. So the poultry in industry over here lose money. 
See, these speculators are the ones, these guys are the middlemen. They don't create anything. They create nothing. All thing they have is money. They have capital. And we already talked about, if y'all listen to my, my little previous podcast on the Federal Reserve and my little, my little podcast on, uh, on, on, on money, you know, on cheap money, you, you see that the money costs them absolutely nothing. Because it's cheap money that they can borrow. A speculator don't put up his own money. A speculator borrows that million dollars. Sometimes there's conglomerates that put their money together to raise a million dollars. They come out of their pocket. They go to the bank and they raise a million dollars from the bank, right? At 0% interest. Then they go out here and they give it to this farmer to get a million dollars of that farmer, right? Now, next, next year, crop coming because they're doing all these things on the back end to inflate the market through their propaganda. When the market is inflated, right, they're going to sell high and they're going to make money off that off that corn. So they may have to get, 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 get that farmer a million dollars for that corn, but they inflated the market so much that they didn't make 20 millions off that one million dollar investment. And then what they do is they pay the bank back at zero interest. Now they made a profit without putting up their own money. These how these speculators work. You know, you may have a. Uh, you may have a commodity. You know, speculators work also in the commodity markets too. You know, commodities are like cars. Commodities are clothes. You know, commodities are tangible goods. I'm gonna, I'm, matter of fact, I'm going to do a little pie talk on wealth. Let you people know what wealth is. See, people think wealth is money. Wealth ain't money. Wealth, wealth is your wealth is the labor, the, the labor that people put in, your exertion. That's what people pay for. That's the wealth that's extracted out of the economy. You're getting free labor for worthless money. With zero percent interest, but this is the game that's being played. This is how they's going. To, that's how you see in uh, in future market where they say, well, you know, over here in the United States, the 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 thing that was going on between, you know, they were saying Trump and China, you know, and and the, the how the farming industry was hurt, you know, all that has to do with speculators. You know, it, that ain't Trump doing that. These are the speculators that's pulling the string on the, on the back end between China and the United States because the speculators are trying to drive the market in a certain way. Whether the, whether the speculators are trying to drive, drive the market in the, in the way of China or they're trying to drive the market in the United States. Now, what Trump did was Trump he subsidized the farmers. See, farmers didn't have a bad crop. It was just they couldn't sell their crop because the speculators wasn't buying their crops. So who they gonna sell to? They can't. They, they can't go to the flea market and sell all that all that corn at a dang old flea market. See, so the farmers got dependent on the speculators. You see, it's like addiction. One thing get dependent on the other. See, once speculators come in and they offer you so much money for your commodity, your commodity or whatever it is, right? And you get addicted to that. That's what you depend on, and you produce so much. You you yield so much, right? Because because you, your output. It, 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 your, your output has to be comparable, comparable to what the speculator is speculating that you should put out. You see what I'm saying? So you get dependent on these speculators coming in and giving you money for your futures. So now you didn't yield all this corn and the farmers that did all yield all this, all this commodity and all this stuff. Now they can't sell it because the speculators ain't buying it. Because the speculators are going to buy China stuff because China stuff is cheaper. And then, then you don't mind paying the import costs because it wasn't import back in the United States wasn't that high in comparable to importing stuff into China. So you can import stuff back and you, you you can you can go to China, get them little or nothing, right? And you can pay the import costs to get it back in the United States and still beat the cost that you would pay the American farmer. See, the speculators were behind all this stuff. You know, these hedge fund people, these speculators. Now, the hedge fund people, now I got to do with your taxes. 
When you go out here and you put money on that stock market and invest, see, hedging, hedging, I'm hedging my bet. You see what I'm saying? These these guys, these hedgers, mess you, they mess your 401k up. You know, they borrow money from people 401ks and retirement funds, and then they, they hedge them bets. They put them out there that a certain market is going to do a certain thing. So you got your hedging speculators, which is pretty much, they work tandem, hand in hand one another. So, but I'll tell y'all about the farmers, though. Right, the farmers of the United States had all this production that they couldn't get rid of because the speculators wasn't buying it. Cause now, cause they got dependent on that speculator money. See, that everything works just like the drug game. You know, you got a product, you 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 create a demand for it by you getting people addicted to it. The farmers got addicted to that speculator money. And when the speculators went in a different direction, because the speculators are always looking for their bottom line and to satisfy their stockholders. So the, so the, so, so, so the, the speculators, he needs to make money. Right? So in order to make money, he needs he need to drive down his purchasing costs. He needs, he, he needs to drive down the cost that he pays these farmers for futures. And if the United States farmer ain't going to play ball, he's going to go to China and play ball. So now Trump and them got to get involved and say, wait a minute. Okay, y'all want to do that? Y'all want to hurt the American farmer like that? We're going to raise the, uh, the import taxes on you, on you bringing that corn back into the United States. This is where the war started at. This is what they call war. But it ain't a war of the people. It's a war, war of these rich speculators and hedge fund investment people. They don't want created all of this. And we, we dumb American, American people, we think war China and, 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 and America and this economic war, all this stuff is, a, is, is created by Wall Street and these speculators and these hedge fund people. And it's also created because these farmers in America had got addicted to, again, cheap money. Cheap money is speculative money, again. The farmers was, was addicted to it too because they said if I can get a million dollars for a crop I haven't even produced, whether that crop failed or yield next year, right? I'm taking a million dollars because that's guaranteed money. A bird in hand and one better than the bush. So they take that cheap money. The farmers take that. Now the speculators got you hooked. Right? So the speculators come back in and you don't, don't, don't want to play ball with them at a lower price. Now they going somewhere else. But now you got all this stuff here. Now what you going to do with it? You can't have no flea market or no, or, or, or no fruit sale. You know, to sell all that corn that, that you got. It, now it's just sitting there rotting. Because, because you're not going to take it and, and go give it away to homeless people and feed people. You're just going to let it rot. So that way, and that's why then, then the government comes in and subsidizes these farmers. Subsidize these farmers with money that, 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 uh, that the speculators wouldn't buy, wouldn't give them. So now we subsidize it. But we, we, even when they subsidize it, where did all that, that produce go? It, it just rots. They don't give it to the people. The government don't give it to the people. It just rots. You just rush, they throw it away. Maybe get to the peas or chickens or something. So these hedges and speculators, now, now what I'm saying is now, I'm not telling you that it's bad what they're doing because it's all about the game. I mean, when you play the game, when a speculator come to you, right, and you take their money and you get addicted to it, that's not the speculator's fault. It's not another man's fault when he comes in and finds a creative way to make money out of, out of you without doing anything. But everything I tell you people, it drives back to having cheap money. You see what I'm saying? It goes back to cheap money. So look at that. That's my little talk. I can go on and on about these hedge and speculators. But 
you know, the market, how, how these market, how these market, everything. We are, we are in a speculative market. I mean, we look at the stock market up and down. It's speculative. Speculative. How many people going to die of the coronavirus? Uh, it's speculative. They got charts on all this kind of stuff. I'll tell you something, man. Everything out here, man. These, these people got data on everything. And with this internet, everything just opened up even wider. Old man once told me, control your resources will control your world. I think that when the old man, it was actually Gil Scott Heron. Control your resources will control your world. And that's what they did. They're, they are controlling all of our resources. And these hedges and these speculators, these are the ones that dictate our resources, what we have and what we don't have. The market goes up, the market goes down. And we people, we are addicted to it. That's why they don't want you saving money. They, would, they, would, they want every penny you get, they want you spending it, putting it back out there on the market. They don't want you saving any money. They don't want you saving it. That's, that's, that's why they give you 0.01% interest because they don't want you saving. It's not motivational for you saving. People think that I got a 401k when I retire. That's not guaranteed. Ain't nothing guaranteed like it was a long time ago. Now, in today's market, your retirement ain't guaranteed. Your 401k ain't guaranteed. That, it fluctuates with the market. Ain't none of that stuff is guaranteed. Because money isn't worth anything. It's all cheap money. It's like, it's like who can stack up enough paper, worthless paper, so when it inflates, you got, you know, it, it may, right now it may take a dollar by a loaf of bread. When it inflates, it, it may take a thousand one dollars to buy a loaf of bread. That same $1 bread. So it's about stacking enough worthless resources. But there's a game here. And like I said, I'm not saying it's good or bad. There's a game here that we all then got addicted to. We didn't got as, as, as middle class, ordinary folk, we didn't got addicted to making money and spending money. Making it and spending. Going out here buying cars. Going out buying stuff. Now, I want y'all to still buy cars, do all that kind of stuff, because I keep people who build the cars making a little money like my nephew. So I ain't saying don't go buy no car. But what I'm saying is that when we get addicted to these things, when we get addicted to cheap money, when we get addicted to cheap goods and services, and when these speculators and hedges come in, right, and they take that away from us because they want to charge us a high price, then this is what we got to deal with because we are part of the market. We are consumers. Like I say again, consumers. Whatever, whenever the producer names the tune, the consumer has to dance. You see what I'm saying? And that's what happened to the farmers with these speculators. The speculators started naming the tune. The farmers didn't want to dance. So now it decreases in this media bag, us against them, us against China. And the middleman who put on the screen are the speculators in Wall Street. Again, I'm not saying speculators in Wall Street are bad. Because, hey, people are People going to do what you let them do. And people want what they want. The people want what they want. So there's a price to pay for it. All right, now, look. Took up another y'all time on this little talk here. But look here. Now, y'all know I always tell y'all now, when y'all look for y'all cigars, I want y'all to shop local. Y'all can go on JR. You can go on Holtz. You can go on Corolla. You can find y'all some good sticks and some good, you know, really good prices for the boxes. You know, probably some of them... Uh, 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 free shipping. You know, you can stop up your humidor at home, but there's nothing like going to get you a good stick and going to a good cigar lounge. 
I'm going to Raw tonight. Today, Friday, I'm going to Raw. And I got a feeling, hopefully, Jeremy from Ashes Cigars, hopefully, Jeremy is in the area. He's going to stop by our spot today. Because we ain't seen Jeremy in months and months and months. It'll be sure it's nice me getting this little talk here. And then later on, you know, Jeremy popping up at the spot. You know what I mean? At the cigar spot. Man, look, y'all shop local. Go to you get you go to your local cigar spot and get you a good stick and sit down there amongst the fellas and you know socialize a little bit and just relax the time of mind. Keep money circulating to the local economy. Support your local cigar lounge where we can relax and we can enjoy ourselves. A lot of people out here with these governments and these Me Too people trying to take away our rights to smoke a cigar. Man, I ain't never seen no stuff like that here in this country here. It's just something that we've seen. Everybody's rights being invaded. If you want to get cancer and smoke a dang old cigarette, that's your thing. If you want to smoke a cigar, that's your thing. But everything being taken away from you. You got to be so politically correct everywhere where you go. So, but right now, I know we still got Roz. I know you still got Corona, you know, down there in Orlando. You still got Cigar Castle, you know, down there in Tampa. You still got uh, Central Cigars down there in uh, St. Pete along with uh, House of Pipes. You know, you still got Havana up in Gainesville. Now, these are some of my little favorite little spots right up in there, my little parts. You know what I mean? But whatever your little part is, man, y'all support y'all local cigar establishment. Now, this ain't no promotion. Ain't nobody paying me for nothing like this. This do it because this is my passion. This is what I enjoy. And like I tell y'all, I'm going to have to talk with y'all one day. I'm going to tell y'all how cigars smoking actually saved my life coming out, coming out of the, uh, uh, my last divorce. I'm telling you, the social group that I found through smoking cigars, man, has been a blessing for me. And I don't believe in no blessings. I don't believe in all that old stuff. But I do think I, I appreciate the, com- the, the, the community. So that's why I tell y'all, we keep telling y'all, pump money into your local economy. Buy your little cigars online, build up your little humidor at home, but get out of the house and go smoke around some social people. And don't and don't take your own cigars to the cigar spot. That's rude. You know, when you go to your cigar spot, I don't care if you got a million cigars at home, when you go to your cigar spot, you buy that. You buy that and you social up and you socialize and you appreciate it. All right, then, y'all. I'm going to get out of here. I'm tired of speaking to y'all. Look, I'm tired of talking to y'all. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love everybody. But look at this. I'm going to end this little talk right here like I always tell y'all. In life, y'all take care of everybody. But more importantly, y'all take care of yourself first. All right, now.